I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And this is Teaching While White. White nationalism is growing in the U.S. White supremacists are using social media to recruit, and they're targeting our students. Though many of these groups don't explicitly promote racism, they implicitly rely on misinformation, racial stereotypes, and prejudice to promote fear and support their philosophy. So what can we do as teachers to help prevent this? How do we demonstrate anti-racism as white teachers, and how do we offer examples of a different way to be white that's not based in superiority? We wanted to do this episode to connect the anti-racist work we do in our classrooms with the existence of hate groups and white nationalist organizations that are successfully recruiting white students into their ranks. Recent events have raised the profile of many of these groups, and it can be easy to write them off as extremists. But the path to white supremacy is paved with many steps along the way. It can begin in our classrooms as jokes or microaggressions about people who are different from us. While there might not be a clear statement of white supremacy, those jokes and slights are the place where many hate groups find their way in. Our guests today are Shelley Touchluck, author of the books, Living in the Tension and Witnessing Whiteness. Shelley is a professor in the education department at Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. And Christine Saxman, who is a racial justice educator and consultant. Previously, she was a high school teacher and started researching the recruiting efforts of white nationalists after a student told her he understood why people would join the alt-right. We talked with Shelley and Christine about their work to identify white nationalist groups, the recruitment strategies of white supremacists, and most importantly, the ways that teachers can help defeat their efforts. How do we talk about these groups? Uh, Who are they and what do they believe? Well, I think one of the important pieces is to realize that sometimes... It seems easy to paint them all with a brush, like they're all white supremacists, they're all white nationalists, they're all racists. And that isn't really that helpful because it doesn't fully help us to understand who our young people are being targeted by. So some of these groups that you see getting a lot of news like Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys would actually say we're not racist. And as a matter of fact, we have people of color who are members. Um, And they will focus on men's rights and free speech and libertarian ideals as their core. And yet there's the espoused beliefs and there's the behaviors. And so what what ways do the behaviors actually tell us how racism is or is not functioning for these groups? And I know Shelley has done um, a lot of work with me in really connecting the dots between the difference between um, an alt-light, an alt-right, the far-right, and then actual white supremacist and white nationalist groups. One of the things that has been important to um, know for me has been that there is a distinction to be made between those that espouse beliefs that are specifically white nationalist versus those who are white supremacist. So for example, a white nationalist is very specifically wanting to see the democracy of the United States fail in order to move toward um, sufficient social disruption and unrest to allow for a civil war. Um, a race war specifically, so that they could achieve an objective of having an, a white ethno state within the confines of the United States. 
they will argue that they are not white supremacists at all. And so whether those who are sort of on the side of violence or those who are offering more pseudo academic, um, you know, proposals to their audiences um, online, um, they tend to say that what they're looking for is just to separate people and that it's not that one group is better or worse than another, but that being separate is the better way to go and has been more effective historically. Um, that's what they'll claim, whether that's accurate or not. And they'll distinguish that from white supremacy and white supremacists, which to them is an avowed um, one group is better than another um, and that white people are better than any other group. Now, if you look at any of the chat features of white nationalists, they, they are white supremacists. So it's very correct to say it's a distinction without a real difference. However, if what you're doing is working with or in relationship with a young white person who is being courted by these different groups, understanding the difference may be important. You don't want to call somebody a white nationalist um, or a white supremacist, to, you know, as you're working with them, if that's not actually what they espouse, even if we know that those groups are backing and very much behind a lot of the more paramilitary groups or others who are um, naming themselves as being more on the side of straight patriotism um, and hiding the sort of racial um, underbelly of their belief system. So where would then, if we look at that, then that big picture perspective is so helpful where would say the alt right then, or just general nationalist uh, groups, sort of exist then on the spectrum? So if, if we're if we're connecting the dots, what is the through line? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> if I if I'm understanding how you're how you're asking it, so I think that the through line goes to the ways in which their behaviors help keep the status quo and help keep racism in place. So whether they align to gun rights and free speech and men's rights, or they're really actively naming that, you know, white people are at risk, we're in danger of genocide. I think the thing to look at is the ways in which each group can help deepen <laughs> the movement towards active racism um, and active violence. I think I think about Kyle Rittenhouse, right? And and the ways in which as a gun rights law and order activist that that made him susceptible to going into another state and being around a, an avowed boogaloo boy. And a boogaloo boy is someone who wants the coming civil war that Shelley alluded to and wants there to be a race war. And so even if Kyle Rittenhouse has never thought deeply about a race war, hasn't thought about that type of racism at all, he ends up side by side in a picture with and walking through a protest, aligning himself with that ideology, maybe unconsciously, maybe consciously. Do you think if someone had talked to Kyle Rittenhouse about how race might be interwoven in the sort of ideology and philosophies that he'd been sort of dabbling in, would that have, I don't know, 
Would that have changed something? I mean, I can't say for sure if something would have right. changed. However, right. I have a belief that if if teachers and other adults in his life had been talking about the ways that race is at play, that I think one of the narratives just from his behaviors that he seems, and honestly how it's being reported about, right, is that because he is was so police-friendly that that automat- automatically meant he had to be anti-Black Lives Matter. And imagine being able to have a conversation about that it's not an either or, that in fact, Black Lives Matter exists in order to bring about justice. And, you know, his protect and serve narrative is about justice. And so if we can actually talk about the the role race plays in justice, that's not oversimplified, that's, that, doesn't, that, that asks us to leave our critical thinking aside, then yes, maybe he could have found a different way of, of pursuing his sense of justice that didn't end up with him in a gun at a protest rally in a state he didn't live in, in a community that wasn't his community. And so that, that question about community too, I think is really important. Like I'm protecting and serving. Imagine the power of having a conversation from a racialized perspective and what does protect and serve mean in that case? How is it being set up as an either or? White property and white community needs to be protected from Black protesters. So for folks who don't know, Kyle Rittenhouse directly said he was he was at the protest to protect and serve that community, though he's not from that community. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Kyle Rittenhouse aside, when we're thinking about these hate groups um, that may or may not have an overt message directly connected to race and racism, so what what's the guiding strategy or message if there is one that are that is similar for all these groups? Is there a through line for what the message is in all of these groups? Would you say? Well, I think one thing that I would say is is certainly the edgy, rebellious side of teens is part of what they're tapping into. Uh, so if you've spent any time in Reddit or 4chan or anything online and you see the memes that they're sharing that are transphobic, anti-LGBTQ, anti-women, that, that there's a, a shared bonding for all of those groups around those messages and then that becomes the way that that they tap you into. At first, you might just think it's funny. And then three clicks away, you're actually getting a much more steeped ideology. So they're actually maybe even starting with jokes as a way to get teens to start clicking. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the indoctrination process ends up starting out with sort of this accidental absorption that, you know, kids and teens are just taught to make fun of uh, others and, you know, piling on. And at some point, you know, when kids start to be, you know, hateful against other girls, often it starts with some misogyny and anti-feminist language. Um, When they start to get pushback, then the kids themselves um, are really taught to turn that sense of, of being pushed back against into a feeling of upset and of anger that they are being somehow having their voice limited. And 
part of the challenge here is that all kids and teens who are in part of their identity process are looking for three things we understand. They're looking for a sense of identity. They're looking for a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And so kids are very susceptible to these messages if they are working toward a sense of who are they going to be in their lives and aren't necessarily fully encased within a community that gives them a sense of belonging and purpose and purpose for what their life is going to mean. And another piece of this from the psychological angle is that adolescence brain structures are actually shifting during this time period. And so one of the aspects of brain development is that the um, insula is a part of the brain that is wildly active during the teen years. And that is the part of the brain that is responsible for a sense of um, myself and the world, a sense of that connection. And so it's also the site of significant empathy. And so if you can imagine the same brain process that is active, that has one teen moving toward, let's say, I'm going to save the gorillas, or I'm going to become a vegan, or I'm going to support and save X. That same process is also active and allows teens to be susceptible to messages that their Western civilization, white community is under siege, that they can actually play a heroic role in saving their community. And particularly from the white nationalist, white supremacist perspective, they have spent years cultivating an entire array of videos and online um, platform experiences for kids to start to get this sense of their sort of sense of self as a white male is under attack and therefore their job is to actually save Western civilization. So all of this can be happening very much in the background and it may not be the first thing that the kids are encountering. However, as a kid starts to move further into online spaces and hits the sort of alt-right, anti-feminist, anti-liberal sorts of uh, platforms, then they become targets for uh, deceptive characters who are trying to manipulate kids into creating a sense of a shared and common enemy. Um, and it's, it's unfortunately tracking very well with what we're seeing in today's politics. The only thing that I would add there is also that all teenagers are susceptible to this and that I think sometimes in these desires to oversimplify and honestly, I think sometimes it comes from a classist perspective that somehow this is only working class white kids who are pulled into these ideologies and who are susceptible to these ideologies when in fact we see that uh, we even saw it in 2016 with the boots and the suits (laughs) as the nomenclature kind of came to say, these different types of white nationalists and different types of white supremacist groups. And yet we really see, and I see right now in a lot of the work that I'm doing in schools, the white, the white students who are, who are falling prey and who are causing, causing harm at their schools, it's, it's middle-class, upper-middle-class and upper-class white students. And so I think it's really important that, that I and other progressives don't fall into an oversimplification that comes from a classism, that somehow it's only working class kids that this is an issue for. Yeah, just that idea that we might miss what's happening uh, in our own house. I think that's a really important reminder 
I'd love to hear from both of you more about recruiting tactics. So I know you've mentioned um, that there may be some online activity, online strategies. What are some of the other strategies um, that these groups are using to bring in um, these young people, these adolescents, our our school-age folks that we're concerned about? At this time, I would suggest that the primary danger is online. Um, whether it is the social media platforms of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all of the ways that kids can just be sort of um, pulled into a more hateful ideology of, of being desensitized to harm um, done to others, um, being influenced to see empathy as either weakness or as simple political correctness. That's where it starts. Um, Also, there are um, a lot of, a lot of of videos on YouTube that uh, need to be uh, watched out for. Um, Online gaming is a major vehicle where you don't actually know who your kids are encountering. And so the chat features um, within online gaming uh, can be a site where kids can be actively recruited. There's evidence that they are um, targeting uh, kids who have experienced um, harm. And so support groups, um, groups for mental health issues um, can also be a site of recruitment. Yeah, I would agree that right now I think the primary place is is online. And I think, too, about just really punctuating this point of with Zoom bombing happening. And usually that means a student within your community shared the information with another student as more and more schools are finding out. And on one hand, that can just be that edgy behavior of, oh, you know, we're bored and we want to push boundaries and we know that this will get a response. And it's really important to ask some questions to find out how much of that ideology and and racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-Islamic sentiment, anti-Semitic sentiment that they're putting out there is something that they just know is edgy or is it something that they're subscribing to? And I think this is a really important maybe time to to name that where some of our information is coming from is uh, the Luskin Center out of UCLA had some students who a while back did did a study and came up with uh, something called a scale of expression, which... I have found very useful. Um, And so for parents and teachers to try to get a sense of where along this spectrum might my child or or a student um, be displaying um, this information. So accidental absorption is the first stage. And that is where, you know, somebody's just coming into contact with content, may not necessarily espouse at all, especially younger kids. They may just like things um, without even knowing what they're liking. Moving from there, though, is the sense of edgy and transgressive um, displays. And so that's what Christine was just talking about, where, you know, teens typically are poking at establishment, right? Poking at authority, trying to get a rise out of people that may or may not mean that the person is really taking on an identity process around, you know, racism, but they're in touch with it. They know that they're doing something that's going to get a rise out of somebody. 
Moving forward is called political provocation. That third stage is where it's actually a bit more pronounced. It still may not be overtly racialized. Um, in Southern California, where I live, we had an example at one point of um, some high school kids who were lifting signs at a soccer game, uh, build that wall. Um, and it was obviously political, but it was done at a game where a largely predominantly white group, uh, a team was playing against a mostly Latinx group. And so the racialization was present, even if it wasn't overt. It's the next stage, which is the, you know, more adhering overt, the overt um, hate where you can start to see the actual identity process forming with an actual white nationalist group or white supremacist group or something like that. And then finally, the furthest part of the stages is violence, um, calls for violence. The challenge that we have is that from the point of transgression to the point of overt hate, there's a lot of overlapping opportunities for displays. And so unless you are staying in close contact with the child and able to have the kind of conversation that sort of digs in and gets curious, what is it that you mean by doing this? Where did you see this before? What does it mean to you? Um, you're not going to necessarily know exactly where on that spectrum the kid is laying. But having those conversations is essential because what also is being found is that the time space from gaining um, access to this information to radicalization is shortening. So for example, um, recently there had been a shooting where the shooter posted his own manifesto on a platform and indicated his own surprise that he had just started accessing this material about a year prior, and that even six months before actually taking a gun and shooting people, he couldn't have imagined himself doing this. And so this is a time period where we need to be very much uh, aware of what our kids' thought processes are. That's so compelling and makes me think for our listeners, then what do you see as the role of white teachers um, in helping to both prevent um, sort of the acceptance of these ideas and sort of being recruited into these networks and then being able to intervene um, as well, uh, should they notice that perhaps some of their students are engaging in some of these online groups? I think for white teachers and white coaches and white administrators who are, who are caring for young people in their lives is to, one, really work on your own racial literacy skills. And so by that, I mean, what is your practice for having deep and important conversations about race? And what's your practice of making sure that, that you're, you're always continuing to deepen that? Because you can't enter conversations with young white folks about race if you haven't been having them as an adult with other adults. And so do your own work, put your, put your mask on and get that mask on to the child pretty quickly, right? To use that, that airplane analogy. And tying those racial literacy skills to digital, digital literacy. So especially right now with so many schools who are 100% virtual, 
knowing where you're asking students to go and why, what are your own digital literacy skills tied to racial literacy skills, and how much are you having that conversation with your students? How much are you actively, intentionally building their racial literacy skills in conjunction with their digital literacy skills, in conjunction with their critical thinking skills? And I think that that scale of expression that Shelley took us through is really important in this too, because I want to add that students can do, white students can do harm in the accidental absorption. They can do harm in the edgy social expression. And so this is not about not, not helping them to understand the harm they're doing and not to hold them accountable for the harm that they're doing. And it's about not overreacting and underreacting. So if my student is being provocative with the meme, me calling him a white nationalist is not going to engender a good process for me to help him build his racial literacy skills, help him build his white racial identity framework so that he sees anti-racism as something that is possible. And it's not about snowflakes who feel guilty about being white and then it's, it's terrible to be white, but it provides a, a very different, active, critically thinking, strengthened sense of self something to aspire to. I think that's so important because Elizabeth and I are always talking with teachers who are not having conversations about race for fear of saying the wrong thing or doing it wrong or causing harm. And what we know is in the absence of conversation, kids are trying to make sense of the world around them, right? So they're falling back on stereotypes, you know, this idea of race being scientific, that their racial superiority is genetic, um, falling back on those myths and stereotypes. And it seems like these groups are really playing on those to bring people in. So in the absence of information, this helps some students make sense of what they're seeing in the world, right? I think that's really important because one of the things, a, a mistake I think a lot of uh, those of us who are educators are making is thinking that we are the ones introducing them to issues of race or social justice or sociological concepts at all. And I think that's not true. I think that um, whether or not a school even has a DEI program, a diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, the fact is that students may actually be being inoculated against the very messages those programs are set to give prior to the school even starting that programming. So because the alt-right hate social justice warrior memes are so prevalent online, as soon as the kids are going online, they're getting battered by all of this content. And as you said, Jenna, trying to make sense of what it all means, but without guidance. And so if parents and teachers aren't stepping in in strong and positive and supportive ways to provide guidance for what it looks like, and in this case, particularly for white young people to understand what it looks like to be a white person in this country at this time, able to create an identity process that actually is um viable and allows them to feel a sense of belonging and to feel sense of community, then um, we are doing a, di a, you know, a disservice to the kids and we are leaving them open to the recruitment efforts of those who are, for example, ready to swoop in and target young white kids with a flyer that says it's okay to be white. 
Now, they know perfectly well, the white nationalists, what they're doing when they target white kids with that statement, because those of us who are trying to do um, anti-racism work, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, too often we aren't recognizing that um, white identity development process needs attention. Um, and so, as Christine said, we do need to do our active work and then be able to offer kids an understanding of how white people can plug in um, very vibrantly and um, with a sense of joy into an anti-racism process. What would you all say, just following up on this piece, what Jenna said, sometimes what we hear from teachers, and I think, you know, this notion of fear of of, of entering into political discussions um, and nervousness about, especially with the upcoming election, you know, what that means and how they can, you know, enter into those kinds of conversations and really feeling like their job is to be neutral. Uh, what would you say to teachers who say, well, you know, those are political discussions, I have to remain neutral? How can we help those teachers uh, know how they can start to engage in these conversations? For me, I think a lot about the reframing. I don't know how racism became something that we need to be neutral about. And that, to me, is even just a critical thinking question. You, you can start with older students clearly up and running, and younger students know what justice is. And so how how has it become that trying to end systems that do harm is something that, that I, I need to be political about. When I teach critical thinking, when I teach empathy, we, t we teach social emotional learning, all of these things, how, how can that be? And so I think that that fear that you named is so important. So really what's at the, what's at the base of my fear? What, what is it that I'm most terrified of? Is it that I'm going to be accused of being political because I say ending racism is important? Is it because I'm afraid I can't actually hold the container for the conversation? Is it because I'm unclear in my own sense of why anti-racism matters? And that's, that's the point to then lean into your collective. I know particularly right now, teaching feels so isolated. And where's my network of folks? particularly for white folks, of other white folks who I can, I, can, I can ask some questions with and practice. If I want to talk about it, like where do, where do I begin the practice? Or where do I just begin understanding what, what's the source of my fear? Yeah, that's so important. And I, I think another piece of that is teachers feeling like they have the skills, the ability to step in when they hear these jokes. You mentioned uh, turning this language, making it into a joke and how it is used as humor sometimes in the recruiting efforts. We hear again and again about students who are saying, oh, I feel triggered right now, or oh, is this a microaggression? Do I have consent? You know, using these words as funny. And so can you say more about why that plays right into the recruiting efforts and why teachers need to be addressing those? I think it goes to something that Shelley said earlier about empathy and the ways that this recruiting actually works to erase empathy. And so by turning all of the things that you mentioned into just jokes, that that's erasing empathy. Because if I care about another person's reaction, that's because I'm operating from a place of empathy. If I've lost my empathy, I don't. And so what's the power of simply asking, so why is that funny? Tell me more about about being triggered, being funny. Like, tell me more about consent. 
and and really engage in a in a critical conversation with the students. Now, often they'll just back down right away because you've called their bluff. But for students who 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 are becoming really attached to the ideology, are going to want to defend that, and that's actually the beginning of the conversation. And to name that piece of not overreacting, underreacting. If I overreact in that moment and just tell a kid, it's not funny to to joke about microaggressions. You know, that's racist, and I just move. It's not in. It's not appropriate in this classroom, and I just move on. I've lost that opportunity to have a deeper discussion with that student and all the students who heard a much more critical thinking conversation about the function of humor, believing that they have beliefs that are important that I should engage in, and then be staying in the conversation rather than just shutting it down so that I can really get a sense of what's at play here. Because if it is that piece of I'm I am becoming really attracted to this idea that uh, racism doesn't matter. I'm much more at risk as a young white person. Which goes back to the other thing Elizabeth and I are talking about. How can we have more white teachers modeling that white anti-racism, modeling that empathy to show students a different way forward, which connects to a lot of the work that we're doing? Well, one of the things that seems awfully important is that um, for white teachers, part of the display and modeling is of them, uh, of, of us, those of us who identify as white teachers, of having a, an attitude that retains the humanity of everybody and that's actually working in alignment with um, anti-racism is about um, collectively liberating all of us from living in a system that is racist and that that undermines everybody's experience. And so I can, as a white person, stand strongly in that without displaying either a sense of guilt or shame about myself as a white person. Um, and I also don't need to attack and belittle others who aren't in um, direct agreement with me all the time. That's what allows me to work with other white people. And so um, I think it's important that we pull in white kids into the conversation. And um, this might be a particular time, particularly while there is so much, you know, distance between us to do a lot more one-on-one -on -one conversations with students to the degree that it's possible being in touch with parents so that parents can have conversations with their kids. Um, the most important thing I've learned recently is um, how essential it is to not judge a kid's perspective, but hear them out, become the listening ear, try to find out what is prompting their value of a particular, maybe it's a website or maybe it is an online, you know, uh, influencer that they particularly appreciate. Why do they find their messaging important? What's the thing that that does for them? Um, figuring that out is going to be key to helping to pull them back toward a more empathetic state. Yes, Shelley, I, I think that's so important to make that distinction. You know, the goal is not to be apolitical because we think about teaching, we're making political decisions all the time in the way we teach uh, and what we choose to teach and how we approach things. Um, so the goal is not to be apolitical. The goal is to not sit in judgment um, of our students and who they are, uh, but to try to be in a place where we can engage them, learn more about why they think what they think, and then have a critical engagement there. Uh, so I think that point is is so important. Thank you. 
Uh, we also have a lot of parents um, who listen and follow us on Teaching While White. And so I wonder if the both of you could share strategies for parents, how they can intervene, um, try to support their children. I, I, of course, some of these strategies we've talked about for teachers would apply, but are there other considerations uh, that parents can be thinking about? I'll just jump in and say one of the most impactful things that I heard from a parent who had this experience with her from nine to 13 year old children was to become a co-conspirator to at the, before there becomes an issue to start to get nosy and, you know, ask what's going on in their online interactions. Hey, what's funny about that meme? Um, Tell me about this. Let me understand engaging and not just in a way that avoids this conversation, but also says, hey, have you seen anything that looks like, you know, um, and actually let them know that there are people out there who are trying to indoctrinate them, that are trying to convince them that their parents and their teachers are out to indoctrinate them, um, and that it's really a manipulation war that's going on out there for them to be aware of it and try to identify it. And so they can become that co-conspirator force in identifying these sorts of memes or messages that are intended to turn them against the very societal links that can keep them healthy. The only thing I'll add is I want to give a shout out to Jennifer Harvey's book, Raising White Kids, and uh, and many of her online essays about how to talk to your white kids. I think just the ways that she helps build parent skills to have those conversations is immensely helpful. And so you don't have to just wait for the white nationalist meme to come by to talk about it. But what does it mean to just talk about race with your with your white children from a very young age? All right, I just want to add for for parents of teens who are a little bit older, there is a podcast um, called The Rabbit Hole by the New York Times, which more than any other resource um, goes from front to finish of how uh, algorithms and online platforms are working to spread um, the sort of hate and disinformation. And there are a couple of of episodes, particularly, I believe it was episode five, that I I would suggest parents actually sit and listen to, and then potentially listen to it with with your teen or, or child and ask what they think about it. And if they've come in contact with those things and start the conversation there as well. I love the idea of those resources, especially the idea of, of ways that parents and students, parents and their children um, can, can listen and sort of learn together. Uh, I think those are such important strategies as our children get older. Uh, we will be providing a resource list, um, so thank you for those first, first two that uh, you both shared. If listeners want to learn more, um, are there other resources that you would want us to particularly mention? There's one other I would like to mention. It's very easy to find. Um, it is an article that is titled, What Happened After My 13-Year-Old Son Joined the Alt-Right? It's by the Washington the Washingtonian. I think it's important not only for parents who have who are already struggling with this, but in advance of ever having to have this conversation, it is the story of a parent who had a two-year process with their 13-year-old to pull him back from the alt-right. And what I think was particularly remarkable, not just for parents, but also for teachers, was the steps that the parent needed to make in terms of staying connected to that 
child while they were speaking hate, while they were saying things that felt so incongruous with what they, what the parent had taught their child and knew of their child. And I think it's a real model for how all of us as teachers and parents need to approach kids who are being indoctrinated into hate these days. And the resource that I'll add is the Western State Center Confronting White Nationalist Toolkit. It, it provides a lot of really helpful language, scenarios, and, and really emphasizes the need for the entire community to work on this, that it's not just parents, it's not just teachers, that you need to talk to the students, you need to talk to the community, um, and that it, it really becomes an important idea for those of us who identify as white to really, what does it mean to be a community, and that we really want racism to end. And that means that we actually have to be deeply connected with one another to make that happen. That was Shelley Touchluck, author and professor of education at Mount St. Mary's University, and Christine Saxman, racial justice educator and consultant. They describe so well how teachers can help prevent the recruitment of our white students into hate groups. As they point out, one of the key things we can do is help our students to build empathy and a healthy racial identity. Yeah, that really brought home for me just how important it is to interrupt those little moments that don't seem like a big deal. We need to stop letting guilt and shame and the fear of getting it wrong get in the way of these critical conversations about race and racism. When we don't talk about it, we leave our students vulnerable. We have an amazing list of resources, including the ones mentioned in the episode, on our website, teachingwhilewhite.org. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word. Today's episode was brought to you by East Ed, a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. Our editor is Kate Ellis, and our music is written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi, and this is Teaching While White, 